Okay, Andy, coming up June 14th, Richfield Playhouse. Wishbone Ash is there. It's going to be um, celebrating the 50th anniversary of live dates. But that's not the only big anniversary uh, that happened this year as far as the uh, recording history of Wishbone Ash. So we'll, we'll get to all those. But why don't we start uh, by talking about live dates first? Uh, I know we, we actually caught that show a, a few months ago in Norwalk, and uh, glad you're bringing it back. But what is it specifically about the Live Dates album that is so significant in the history of Wishbone Ash? Well, if you can, everything's contextual. So basically, <clears throat> there weren't that many live rock albums made right. at that point. Mm-hmm. There were there was the Allman Brothers, you know, Fillmore. There was Live right. at Leeds with the Who. You yeah. know, there were there were a lot of j- live jazz albums. But so the era, you know, the the rock guys were. Just, in fact, there was only in Britain at that time. I think the Rolling Stones Mobile mm-hmm. was the definitive uh, recording unit, and that's what we actually recorded the album on. And so it was, you know, it's kind of weird because you know that that mobile truck would have these old school giant MCI twenty uh, four track machines, two of them, mm-hmm. and you know, the tape only ran for so long, so you had to switch very quickly during a live performance from one to the other. So all this technology was kind of basic, but it was on wheels. Yeah, and um, so that's what that that's to give the context of the time and and how unusual it was to produce. A proper rock album, so that you know that's what the way you have to think about it. These days, it's so commonplace. You know, you can record live so easily, but sure. So it was fair. You, know, we were part of a kind of a select group of bands that were actually actually able to afford it and able to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I understand. We discussed this last time you were here, but I just wanted for clarification. You actually uh, about a year or so ago. Uh, performed in its entirety uh, the Live Dates album uh, at Daryl's House Club in Pauling. Um, can we expect to see that uh, in a commercial release? Yeah, it's being worked on right now. Um, Ju- I think uh, July is the actual release date. That's uh, through um, a, a German record label. And um, mm-hmm. so... Yeah, it's it takes a while. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> yeah. I mean, to record them, it's real quick. You just it's recorded right there, and they've got a great recording set up at Daryl's house. So yeah. that's why we chose that venue? Sure, it's a musician's uh, dream. Exactly. Well, a musician great. runs it, so I guess uh, yeah. that would be the case. Sure, yeah. very nice place. Mm-hmm. Now, the other anniversary that uh, we are celebrating uh, is the fiftieth for Argus, uh, and in fact, I recently saw a video that you posted. Uh, for a uh, unboxing uh, of the Argus album, um, first of all, let's let's talk about the significance of Argus to your career, and then let's talk about what's in this box set because it's pretty substantial. Yeah, well, you know, again, it's part of a select group of um, albums that are now fifty years of age, and uh, right. and the band, you know, itself, obviously. And um, so they liked, and it's a classic. So the record label, Madfish, they, they're really experts at doing these box sets. They're currently working with Four Seasons and Captain Beefheart. In, in Europe, they're known as, mm-hmm. they're just so good at it. And, um, yeah, it's, again, like the Live Days album you just mentioned, it's part of a select few records, classic records from that early period of the 70s that, that you know, need to be commemorated. And I'm, I'm really, you know, I feel very... Right. Privileged by that. of all the albums that you've done, 
What do you think it is about that particular album that really made it so special that seemed to strike a chord with people? Good question. I mean, mm-hmm. you remember back in the day we'd call them records? Yes. That means they were recordings, but they were also a record of the period of time, the thing that was going on there. Right. And 1972, the year it was recorded, was an exceptional year for rock, especially British rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of us <clears throat> Brits were coming across the pond and we were trying to, quote-unquote, make it in America because that was the, the jewel in the crown. That was the big market. You wanted to be in that market, mm-hmm. as record guys would say, you know, sure. to be in a market. You know? mm-hmm. And... Um, and, but there was so, so much creativity. It was Jethro Tull, Figures of Brick. There was Yes, there was Genesis, there was uh, Deep Purple, all these. And, and Argus actually unseated some of those albums from the top of the UK charts in particular. Yeah. So, it's, you know, it is regarded as a classic, but it was also a classic year, classic period of time for rock. You know, we're not talking rock and roll, we're talking about rock and, and British rock in particular. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, you know, we were part of that nice group of uh, bands and musicians were actually helping to um, formulate stadium rock, really. When I say that, I'm not talking about the, 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 yeah, the style of music to a degree, but also we were out on the road and all the sounds uh, guys, you know, were, oh, wow, these guys are trying to project in these big uh, venues, these mm-hmm. stadiums, and they're writing albums that are suitable. That's a very important thing. Like August, you know, it's, it was a very suitable album for those venues, you had to slow the music down, and we were part of that thing of. And of course, subsequent to that, uh, stadium rock became an American thing, right? And, and a lot of bands like Boston, Journey, and Foreigner, exactly. they fit, they saw what was going on, and they saw what they had to do, and they saw those gigantic baby boomer audiences that were out there, mm-hmm. and they got like in the American way, they did it very, very well. What was interesting, though, about the ones uh, from before that, when when you were uh, doing this, was that a band like Wishbone Ash could be very successful and be a big concert draw without the benefit of having top ten singles. That's the amazing thing. We were we were, and we still are regarded as an album band, right? And you you know, on FM radio, which was ruled the waves at that time. Um, <clears throat> the jocks were all young. The managers of the bands were young. Mm-hmm. The jocks were all young. And they just wanted to play the cuts from the albums that they loved. And so it was a marriage made in heaven for us. We could just, we were not only traveling around the road, listening to other bands, picking up all these influences from FM radio, but we were making the records and the people playing them were of our, our age group. And we were like, we were a bunch of rebels. You know, we all felt we were part of a, mm-hmm. a select group of people. It was kind of fun mm-hmm. time, you know. As, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the box set of Argus is pretty substantial. Uh, so why don't you describe what's in it and what makes it so special as opposed to just uh, a reissue of the album? Well, first and foremost, um, <clears throat> the album has been remastered, mm-hmm. not remixed. Um, there is a remix version out there from back in the day. Um, but uh, me in particular as part of the team that put it together, I insisted that it wasn't remixed because... As I said earlier, it's a record. It's a, rec- a record of a particular moment in time. And we made these albums quick. I mean, I think August was done in 10 days <clears throat> with a, t- a great team, you know, Martin Birch, classic engineer and classic uh, recording studio. So you want to keep that intact. But if you can enhance a little bit the mastering side of things with the technology, 
that's the way to go, and that's what we've done uh, on vinyl. And then accompanying the um, the re-release is a, a a couple of live recordings of the time, some studio outtakes, mm-hmm. uh, might even be headphone mixes, um, so you can hear us actually getting the music together in the studio, which is, we'd already written it. Mm-hmm. We wrote the album on acoustic guitars, actually. Okay. And so, you know, to go in the studio and plug in the electrics was like, oh, wow, this is, things, this is sounding how we imagined it. So you hear different guitar solos, you hear uh, engineer prompts, you hear musician prompts, say, hey, can you, maybe you could do that a little bit better or can, can we try this? You hear that stuff. And then there's a beautiful recording of... Um, we did a show, Year of the Child, I think it was called. It was uh, at the, there's a place in London called the Alexander Palace. Mm. It's not a palace, but it was a big expo centre. Okay. And it's on a giant hill, looks down over the London. And uh, we did a show there with um, lots of other artists, cast teams, all so- sorts of people, and um, they recorded that show. So mm-hmm. those recordings became available. That's part of it. And then in addition to that, there's a beautiful coffee table book, which is de rigueur with these kind of box sets. And, of course, along with the bands and the musicians and the engineers and the managers, there was also a coterie of extremely gifted rock, rock, quote-unquote, photographers, people that knew how to get good. And so there was all these print publications available at the time, and these guys were the top of their game. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of classic photography that's never been available before. So that's almost... That's part of the package. That's right. just some of it. Then mm-hmm. a certificate of authenticity and all that stuff. But um, yeah, and so it's not a. Ma- we did a massive box set which was called the Vintage Years, which was a mm-hmm. career retrospective. Right. But this is just dedicated to that moment in time, that album, and um, yeah, what we looked like, how we were, how we conducted ourselves. The whole thing is in that package. You just mentioned that a lot of that stuff was actually written on acoustic guitars. But ironically, the thing about Wishbone Ash is what's become a trademark of the Wishbone Ash sound are the what's now known as the twin guitar attack. Uh, two lead guitars, and in many cases, uh, guitar harmonies. How did that develop? That's a good, another good question. Mm-hmm. Um, now we have these um, <clears throat> specialist terms for everything. Yeah. Uh, classic rock's one of them. Right. Uh, you know, twin lead guitar band or metal or whatever. We didn't have those terms in those days. We uh, were coming out of the 60s. <clears throat> Again, context is everything, right? Sure. So as musicians, um, myself, as a teen, I was playing in what we called in Britain soul bands. Mm-hmm. And soul bands, R&B you would call it these days, and uh, it was basically we, we were aping what was going across here in the, in, you know with the um, I mean the music was being played on the um, radio in, in the UK it was Motown Tamla and uh, Stax Muscle Shoals all those guys well, those who we looked up to so we had a soul band so I was busy in the 60s working out with the horn players the horn lines and I would be chunking away in the back on rhythm guitar uh-huh. but so it, the, the horns were doing the lead parts you know these little Segments is ear candy that would punctuate the music, the song. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, wow, that, you know, I got good at that. My ear training got good. Right. And when we formed Wishbone Ash, I put a lot of that energy and that effort into the guitars. So I thought, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to... We, we'd already been through the 60s. We'd, been, we'd had Eric Clapper. We'd had uh, Peter Green, Jimmy Page, these rock blues acts. But So we needed a, our own distinct sound. So the idea was let's... 
use the use the lessons of the the horn sections and make uh, have a guitar section. Yeah. So when the the two lead players come together, they're playing something composed, something specific. Sure, we could play our rhythm chops, we could do our lead soloing, but to make the music stand out, and that was another key thing about the early 70s, 72, all the bands were different. They all had a signature sound. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, you can, yes was, uh, you know, Chris Squire and the amazing bass lines. Sure. And, uh, those are incredible arrangements, those high harmonies. Uh, you know, uh, Tull was the flute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Wishbone was the twin leads. And right. so we pretty pioneering in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the Allman Brothers over here. We weren't aware of them actually, but right. until they started putting us on shows in the South, yeah. and we were we were hooked up with them a couple of times. So we had our own distinct English way of doing that. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting too that uh, a lot of the bands that would wind up being influenced by that were heavy metal. While Wishbone yes. Ash could certainly rock, <laughs> the bands that really seemed <clears throat> to epitomize that sound later on were groups like. Uh, Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. Uh, with Thin the, Lizzy was another the, one. Right. Not metal per se, but yeah. But a hard rock. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's a, it, it's interesting how the, they picked it up and then just, I guess, up the volume a little bit, I suppose. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah they up the volume, up, up the distortion. And I think you have to, again, context, context. You know, mm-hmm. though, so when, when the band was formed, <coughs> I was nineteen twenty. Mm-hmm. Those kids that were coming to our Audience, we're in our audience, there were 15, 16, some of them, right. wannabe guitar players. And you're thinking about the fact now we, we take for granted that on the internet you've got all this iconic imagery, you know. Mm-hmm. So imagine you've just got print, you've got the Melody Maker magazine and you see a picture of a young guy with a flying V guitar. Yeah. And uh, that would be me. I was often uh, the one that they put on, on the, in the press. And these that was a that was for a young kid. I was, I mean... I did a book of, uh, a few years back, a biography, and um, Ian Rankin, the uh, famous um, detective novelist from Scotland, did the, the um, introduction to it. Mm-hmm. And he told me, you know, what it was like to wait every week for the Melody Maker magazine and see who, what was the flavour of the week, who was happening in the charts. And, you see, you know, you see that imagery in a, in a print magazine, a guy with a flying V, and then you've got this very distinctive individualistic rock music. Sure, it would have influenced some bands that were younger to be bands that were people that were perhaps in the audience or were listening to this kind of music. They were soaking this stuff up. Mm-hmm. Now we take it for granted. You can see everything about everything mm-hmm. on the internet. But uh, so, you know, I mean, that's why I think that metal picked up on it. The Flying V has become. Uh, it's it's really the third iconic rock guitar. You got the Les Paul, the Fender Stratocaster, Flying V. At the time, was a dog. No one wanted him, mm-hmm. it, and the, but the heavy metal kids picked up on it. Mm-hmm. I think it was Albert King played the V. It was you see a couple of blues artists using them. Yeah, Keith Richards had one. I remember on the CV seeing that. Dave Davis. Um, so all of those things went into the pot, and that's what led to the heavy metal thing. Okay. And, of course, don't forget, a lot of metal bands do actually use twin leads these days. Yeah, still do. Yeah. Still do. Yeah. Now, the current lineup, when I say current because it's not unusual at this point for veteran bands to have switch members around, and while you're you're the, uh, I guess, sole survivor of the uh, original lineup. I'm one lineup, of the founding members and, right. and never, never actually never stopped doing it. Right. <laughs> But on the other hand, a, lot, a bunch, uh, at least a couple of guys in this lineup have been with you for a long time now. Yeah. 
And what's interesting about this is that the other three guys in the band all live in England. You, on the other hand, have been a Connecticut resident for, for I guess, over 40 years now. So how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, enter the internet. You know, right. um, we were one of the first bands to get a website, incidentally. But, um, oh, all right. So we, we, we can communicate now very easily for free. Kids today take this stuff for granted, but right. we can flip ideas back and forth in files across the, the, uh, the, the pond. And, um, yeah, but, but it does, does pose its problems. And we have some, some, uh, some summer festivals this year in Europe, and um, the logistics are formidable, actually. Um, but I've been doing it long enough. Um, I, I do a lot of that. And my wife has taken over now. She's okay. retired. Um, she's, she, she's actually handling that thing. And so we have, a, we have a really good team of people that help with all of that. But it's not easy. It's not easy. And um, for a period of time, we had, uh, I had a guitar player from Finland in the band for uh, over 10 years. And he, and he lived in Finland? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then um, at another point in time, um, we, we had an all-American band in the 90s. Wishbone was all-American. Okay. And we did an album called Illuminations. That was uh, a gentleman from Connecticut as well, Roger Philgate, joined me in the, in the band. And that was a fun time, you know, but... Um, yeah, like you mentioned, a, a band like us will go through changes because we're always, in addition to being um, a vintage act, as you, if you might want to call it. Heritage. Are, heritage. I think that's, that's the, the term word. that's being used lately. That's the word, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, right. Another one of those those niche terms. But we are also, you know, we're producing new music. Every right. few years we produce an album. So, you know, I like to think we've got some uh, creative muscle left, you know. So, um, mm -hmm. hence the change in lineup and so on and so forth. That brings up the next question. The last um, album of original material was in 2020. So, when you're done with this particular uh, tour, uh, can we expect any uh, new music or or uh, or new things from Wishbone Ash? Yeah, I'm thinking that way now. I mean, the summers was a great gestation period to to, to think about new music. What it will be, how it will be, I don't know. I just need to get one out before AI takes us all over. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't mm -hmm. know. But I'm, <clears throat> I've got an idea. We one, Back in the day, we did an instrumental album. I've always hankered to do another one of those. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there will be. I mean, if you a band like us, you're creative, you do sound checks, you're jamming out, you're recording stuff, there's, there's stuff in the can that, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, at some point, when the time is right, um, but we've got this live album coming out, which is a re-recording of live dates just for the hell of it, Yeah. Uh, for the aficionados, you know. Um, mm -hmm. they get that one out first. And then, I mean, this is just, obviously, we all went through COVID. Right. Um, things came to a standstill. So at, they're flying back with a, you know, a vengeance. We are getting so much live work that this year has pretty much been put aside to, to play out on the stage. And, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of three American tours, a British tour, a German tour, we just got just finished a French tour. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so that's all about live work at the moment, but uh, there will be one forthcoming, I'm pretty sure. 